I think most people recognize that sin is bad. And yet I think also most people recognize that some sins are in fact worse and more dangerous than others. So stealing a car, right? Grand theft auto at 25 is worse than, say, lifting a bag of Skittles from a concession stand when you're five. Not that we would have any experience of that in our house. Not that at the Chevrolet pool in D.C. one day when one of ours didn't get that dollar and they really wanted those bag of Skittles and they went for that five-finger discount, not calling anybody out. Friends, Catholicism makes such distinctions, right? They talk about mortal sins versus venial sins, right? Mortal sins are so serious that they can, in fact, sever a person from saving grace and will eternally damn them unless they participate, cooperate with the church, right, in absolution and confession and the rest. Whereas venial sins, right, those are far less serious, right, like lifting a bag of Skittles, Now, I think those are actually unhelpful categories, right? Mortal sin, venial sin. The reality is all sin is mortal and that all sin spiritually destroys, brings about death. But whether whether we're talking about such categories of mortal or venial or just the seven deadly sins, many of us may know that expression, we get that some sins are more serious than others. And so we look about the world today. We think about the atrocities being committed in Ukraine, right? The torture the mutilation of bodies, the mass graves, we recognize that's horrific sin. Or maybe we think of the Golden State Killer, that the rapist and murderer from the 70s and 80s who was free for nearly three decades until he was recently caught through random genetic testing. And, and that was made all the more tragic because that man, it turns out, had served as a police officer. Or maybe human traffickers who empty the pockets of the poor and the displaced only to leave them to bake to death in shipping containers. We have categories of really serious and dangerous and damning sins. And we think about those sins, but I want you to think about a different kind of sin this morning. What about the sin of complaining? How would that sin perhaps rank in your order of what's particularly dangerous for your own spiritual life? Would you think of complaining? Would you think of grumbling as a serious sin? Would you think of complaining as the kind of sin to be avoided at all costs? Would you think that if you are not careful, such a sin could lead to your own death? Should it be one of the seven deadly sins, right? Complaining. Well, friends, it's with that question in mind that I would invite you to turn again to our study in the book of Numbers. We're going to be in Numbers chapters 11 and 12 this morning. If you don't happen to have a Bible, we provide them in the seat backs before you. And you can find Numbers chapter 11 beginning on page 119. Page 119. And if you're visiting with us, Numbers is really just the story of why it took the nation of Israel 40 whole years to merely go 150 miles. And in the first 10 chapters, what we've seen is that God has has ordered them, he's prepared them, he has promised to go before them, right, to the promised land. So they've loaded up their packs, right, they've tightened their laces, they've filled their canteens, and they are ready for the journey. There is palpable excitement as we close the end of chapter 11, because everything thus far is going wonderfully well, right, swimmingly well, until we get a few days into that journey. And this is what we come to find. If you will, follow along with me. Numbers chapter 11. Numbers chapter 11. And you will be helped if you have a Bible out before you. All right, Numbers 11. And the people complained in the hearing of the Lord about their misfortunes. And when the Lord heard it, his anger was kindled. And the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some outlying parts of the camp. And then the people cried out to Moses, and Moses prayed to the Lord, and the fire died down. So the name of that place was called Taborah, because the fire of the Lord burned among them. Now the rabble that was among them had a strong craving. And the people of Israel also wept again and said, Oh, that we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing. The cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. But now our strength is dried up, 
and there is nothing at all but this manna to look at. Now the manna was like coriander seed and its appearance like that of bdellium. The people that went about and gathered it and ground it in handmills or beat it into mortars and boiled it in pots and made cakes of it. And the taste of it was like the taste of cakes baked with oil. When the dew fell upon the camp in the night, the manna fell with it. Moses heard the people weeping throughout their clans, everyone at the door of his tent. And the anger of the Lord blazed hotly, and Moses was displeased. Moses said to the Lord, Why have you dealt ill with your servant? Why have I not found favor in your sight that you lay the burden of all this people on me? Did I conceive all this people? Did I give them birth that you should say to me, carry them in your bosom as a nurse carries a nursing child to the land that you swore to give their fathers? Where am I to get meat to give to all this people? For they wept before me and say, give us meat that we may eat. I'm not able to carry all this people alone. The burden is too heavy for me. If you will treat me like this, kill me at once if I find favor in your sight that I may not see my wretchedness. Then the Lord said to Moses, Gather for me seventy men of the elders of Israel, whom you know to be elders of the people and officers over them, and bring them to the tent of meeting, and let them take their stand there with you. And I will come down, and I will talk with you there. And I will take some of the spirit that is on you and put it on them, and they shall bear the burden of the people with you, so that you may not bear it alone yourself. And say to the people, consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow you shall eat meat. For you have wept in the hearing of the Lord, saying, who will give us meat to eat? For it was far better for us in Egypt. Therefore the Lord will give you meat, and you shall eat. You shall eat not just one day, or two days, or five days, or ten days, or twenty days, but a whole month until it comes out of your nostrils and becomes loathsome to you because you have rejected the Lord who is among you and have wept before him saying, why did we come out of Egypt? But Moses said, the people among whom I, whom I am number, six, uh, the people among whom I am number 600,000 on foot and you have said, I will give them meat that they may eat a whole month Shall flocks and herds be slaughtered before them and be enough for them? Or shall all the fish of the sea be gathered together for them and be enough for them? And the Lord said to Moses, Is the Lord's hand shortened? Now you shall see whether my word will come true for you or not. So Moses went out and told the people the words of the Lord. And he gathered 70 men of the elders of the people, placed them around the tent, and the Lord came down in the cloud and spoke to him and took some of the spirit that was on him and put it on the 70 elders. And as soon as the spirit rested on them, they prophesied, but they did not continue doing it. Now two men remained in the camp, one named Eldad and the other Medad, and the spirit rested on them. And they were among those registered, but they had not gone out to the tent. And so they prophesied in the camp. And the young man ran and told Moses, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. And Joshua, son of Nun, the assistant of Moses from his youth, said, My Lord Moses, stop them. But Moses said, Are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put his spirit on them. And Moses and the elders of Israel returned to the camp. Then a wind from the Lord sprang up, and it brought quail from the sea, and let them fall beside the camp about a day's journey on this side and a day's journey on the other side around the camp and about two cubits above the ground. And the people rose, rose all that day and night and all the next day, and they gathered the quail. Those who gathered least gathered ten homers, those who gathered them for themselves all around the camp. And while the meat was yet between their teeth, before it was consumed, the anger of the Lord was kindled against the people, and the Lord struck down the people with a very great plague. Therefore the name of that place was called Kibroth Hatava, because they buried the people who had the craving. From Kibroth Hatava, the people journeyed to Hazaroth, and there they remained at Hazaroth. Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Cushite woman whom he had married, for he had married a Cushite woman. And they said, Has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us also? And the Lord heard it. 
Now the man Moses was very meek, more than all the people who were on the face of the earth. And suddenly the Lord said to Moses and to Aaron and to Miriam, Come out, you three, to the tent of meeting. And the three of them came out, and the Lord came down in a pillar of cloud and stood at the entrance to the tent and called Aaron and Miriam. And they both came forward, and he said, Hear my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, might make myself known to him in a vision. I speak with him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. With him I speak mouth to mouth, clearly, not in riddles, and he beholds the form of the Lord. Why were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? And the anger of the Lord was kindled against them, and he departed. And when the cloud removed from over the tent, behold, Miriam was leprous like snow. And Aaron turned toward Miriam, and behold, she was leprous. And Aaron said to Moses, O my Lord, do not punish us because we have done foolishly and have sinned. Let her not be as one dead, whose flesh is half eaten away when he comes out of his mother's womb. And Moses cried to the Lord, O God, please heal her, please. But the Lord said to Moses, If her father had but spit in her face, should she not be shamed seven days? Let her be shut outside the camp seven days. And after that, she may be brought in again. And so Miriam was shut outside the camp seven days. And the people did not set out on the march until Miriam was brought in again. After that, the people set out from Hazaroth and camped in the wilderness of Paran. All right. Two great chapters. I hope you read them this week. All right, we could spend two hours just reflecting on these chapters. I was talking with Connor Davey about this, and he said, I know you could. I'm in nursery. Please don't this morning. So we won't spend two hours. But friends, did you notice all the complaining? There is complaining everywhere over these two chapters. So right at the outset, chapter 11, verse 1, what happens? The people complained about their misfortunes. And then in 11.4, what happens? The rabble, we read. They start complaining about what? About the dinner menu. And then Moses goes ahead and complains, wishing he'd rather be dead than have to bear the burden of these people. And then Joshua, the son of Nun, complains about these people prophesying in the camp without permission. And then Miriam and Aaron complain about the ethnicity of Moses' wife. Or wait, maybe that's actually just a smokescreen for their bigger complaint. Namely, Moses' special status as God's chosen prophet. Right? Everywhere in these two chapters, people are complaining. They are dissatisfied with their own lot in life. Friend, I wonder if you can relate to that at all this morning. Dissatisfaction with your own lot in life. Are you struggling at all with how God has ordered your life? Right? It's not what you expected. It's not what you signed up for. Right? Like the Israelites, are you sort of kicking up the dirt in frustration? Are you grumbling through and under your breath? Are you just angrily tossing your pack, so to speak, proverbially on the ground in frustration? Because somewhere along the way, you feel like God has not kept up his end of the bargain. Do you know what it's like to feel that way? And if you do, this text is for you. This text is for me. It's been wonderful for my own heart this week. This text is for all of us. Because we all will regularly find ourselves, so to speak, in the boots of these Israelites. Struggling, complaining, pouting with how God has chosen to order our lives. Friends, here I think is what the text is helping us to see. So if I were to put it in a summary statement. It's that dissatisfaction leads to destruction, which is why we need mediation. Dissatisfaction leads to destruction, which is why we need mediation. And so as we think about these two chapters, we're going to think about them through the lens of that summary statement. And just, I want us to take two lessons away. Lesson one, right there, dissatisfaction leads to destruction. Simple lesson that dissatisfaction, this kind of complaining spirit leads to destruction. And then lesson two is that restoration requires mediation. So dissatisfaction leads to destruction. Lesson two, restoration 
requires mediation. So let's think first about that first lesson. Dissatisfaction leads to destruction. Right? Dissatisfaction leads to destruction. And heads up, lesson one is going to be the lion's share of the message. So don't panic if we're here in lesson one a while. So notice again how the scene opens. Chapter 11, verse 1. Look back with me there. And the people complained in the hearing of the Lord about their misfortunes. So it just begs the question right there. What misfortunes has Israel stumbled upon? Well, we're not exactly given any. right? We do know there are but a number of days into their journey. So the terrain is no doubt rugged there in the wilderness. Right? Maybe feet are forming blisters. Maybe backs are sore from carrying things or sleeping on the hard ground. Maybe they're tired of breaking down and erecting, putting back up their tents. We're not told. We are told the complaints start coming. But friend, keep in mind that God didn't promise his people a life of ease. He didn't promise them a life of comfort to the promised land. Now, he did promise them a land flowing with milk and honey. That he did. And he did promise them cities they did not build and vineyards that they did not plant. And so he called them to look into the future, to look out into the future and to those promises and let those promises order their lives and their trust and their obedience in the present. Friends, it's just like that with us, right, in the Christian life. This life is but a pilgrimage, right? It won't be easy. We will in this life wear down in Christ, and we too are called to look out into the future, what will be ours, right? So we fix our eyes 2 Corinthians 4, not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Because what is seen is temporary. What is unseen is eternal. Right? Israel, though, has lost sight already of her future. So she's been like given an all-expenses-paid trip to the French Riviera. First-class tickets, five-star accommodation, Michelin meals, personal drivers, And it's like them complaining about the long walk from the curb to the airport gate. And it's easy to point the finger at them. And yet, it's no different for us so often. right? We too can become so dissatisfied with our lot when all it is as well is but a long walk to an airport gate. And yet we still ourselves find plenty of reasons to complain. And part of what this passage is helping us see is those complaints are, in fact, not a minor matter. Notice the anger of the Lord was kindled, we read, and fire was consumed, or rather consumed, some of the outlying parts of the camp there at the end of verse 1. And yet that complaining, as we get into verse 4 of chapter 11, that complaining only picks up. We read that there's that rabble, right? That rabble that that is among them, and they had this strong craving, Now, that word rabble is unique in the Old Testament. It's kind of a strange word. Some translations will say riffraff, right? But the idea is likely pointing back to Exodus 12. And if you remember when God is delivering Israel from Egypt, there were other ethnicities that joined with Israel in that exodus. It's a bit of a mixed multitude. And it seems that rabble is specifically referencing that mixed multitude that is and was among them. And their frustrations, that multitude, their cravings actually actually led to Israel weeping. Oh, that we had meat to eat, we read. We remember the fish that we ate in Egypt that cost nothing. The cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, the garlic. Now friends, first of all, when you are shedding tears over cucumbers, Right, which I would just think of as these like soulless chunks of bitter water, right, with seeds in them. Like when you're shedding tears over cucumbers, you have lost touch with all reality. I mean, but ask yourself in all seriousness, I mean, are we really to believe that Israel is slaves? They had all the meat, they had all the fish, they had all the melons, all the seasonings, right? The leeks and the garlic and the onions. We we meant to believe they had all that they wanted. Are we really to believe that they just had free days where they could hike down the Nile and fly fish for trout at their leisure? Fish that cost nothing. Are we to believe that was actually their lot? 
Friends, I want us to note, I think, two things right here. First, note that such a complaining spirit can actually breed a kind of self-deception. Such a complaining spirit can actually breed a kind of self-deception such that our frustration with the present, and in that frustration with the present, we can have a dangerous way of of romanticizing the past, a dangerous way of glorifying the past, and our memories become highly selective. They become highly selective. After all, this was, in fact, the same Egypt that had enslaved Israel for 400 years. Some of them still bore the scars on their backs, right? The merciless bricks without straw, the slaughtering of the innocent children, and they want to go back to Egypt? But that's the kind of self-deception that can work its way into the complainer's heart. And that's what complaining does. It can warp our view of the present. It can sugarcoat the past. And it will completely ignore the promises of the future. Friends, the reality is our past, it was never as bright as we often remember it. And our present is never really as bleak as we can often imagine it. But a second thing I want us to note as well is that not only does this this kind of complaining spirit breed a a kind of self-deception, but it also spreads like a contagion. It spreads like a contagion among the people, spreads right from the rabble, from that mixed multitude, and it goes right through the camps of Israel. It's like an infectious disease. And it's dangerous, and like any airborne disease, right, it easily passes from one person to the next. Which means, friends, you may have to think very carefully about the kind of people you spend lots of time with, the kinds of things you talk about when you gather together. And if complaining and if grumbling is the main item on the menu, then take note because, friend, that is not good for you. It is not healthy for you. It's not healthy for them. You know, we're all influenced in subtle ways. And there may be times when we need to mix up our own company. Or we might need to redirect the topic of conversation so that the disease, this contagion of complaining doesn't spread sort of to mix metaphors like leaven, right? And leaven the whole loaf of bread. But friends, what makes the complaint so tragic, I think, is that God had provided everything his people needed. Right there in the manna. Notice that's where the text goes right after the complaints. What God had provided for them. And manna just literally means what is it? That's what the word means. What is it? Because it was supernatural food, right? No one knew exactly what this stuff was. And yet we're told what it was. We're told something about it, right? It had the appearance of bedellium, verse 7, which isn't especially helpful, right? But if you go back to Genesis 2, Genesis 2, we read of that substance, a prized substance there in the Garden of Eden. And more importantly, it had, it had a taste, we're told, verse 8. And I like how the CSB captures it, this taste in verse 8. It's like a pastry cooked with the finest oil. That was manna pastry with the finest oil and we know from exodus 16 it was also tinged it was kind of sweet with honey so think of it like sweet buttery pastries falling from the heavens like divine donuts (laughs) just there for the people you know that there's that expression every day deserves a donut like this is a whole new level And somehow, these glorious pastries contained all the nutrients the people needed. Friends, I love donuts. It doesn't get any better than that, right? Manna in the wilderness. Now, the reality is I'm sure I'd find a way to complain. The people do. Nonetheless, God had provided, right? The original angel's food cake, whatever you want to call it, he had provided. And it was versatile. Notice all the ways it could be prepared. You could eat it, grind it, boil it, bake it. So there were cookbooks, right? A hundred ways to prepare manna for your next guest. God had provided for them. And you might think it's enough, but instead, what do the people want to do? They want, again, to go back to Egypt. 11.18, they note it was better there in Egypt with the food. They ruefully wonder why they ever left Egypt in chapter 11, verse 20. And my Christian friend, I just wonder, thinking and reflecting on that, 
Do you know that temptation? Do you resonate at all with that temptation to go back to life before deliverance, to life before walking with God, to those former days, right, when you could party on Saturday and just sleep in on Sunday, when you didn't have to think about church, didn't have to think about the weekends, didn't have to think about the language you used when watching a football game, right, didn't have to think about those things. You could spend money however you wanted. You could date whomever you wanted. You could drink or smoke whatever you wanted. You didn't have to fight sin. You didn't have to say no. You didn't have to exercise self-control or sobriety. Do you ever wish somewhere in your heart you could go back to those days, easier days? Friend, the siren call of sin is strong. And it beckons to us like it did to Israel to go back to that right, to go back to Egypt, so to speak. And it promises pleasure. That's what it holds out to us. But don't miss, it only brings pain. Israel was never happy in Egypt. And sin, friends, it never satisfies. Sin only enslaves. And what sin does is it tells you that God is holding back from you. He's withholding good from you. He's denying you pleasure, denying you something of the good life. Sin promises satisfaction, which God, we think, isn't giving to us. Friends, let's say you give in, like pick lust. Let's say you give in to lust. Are you satisfied? The one who struggles with pornography, are you satisfied? Or does it only shackle you before that screen demanding more of you? as you watch the relationships around you disintegrate. Right, we can try to go back to that life, but the truth is that life, it won't make us rich enough or powerful enough or happy enough. We will never be satisfied any more than Israel was satisfied in Egypt because sin doesn't satisfy. It just lies, cheats, and steals from us. And it destroys us, which is exactly what we see happen to Israel. Because as we look forward to 1131, right? The wind brings this quail from the sea. What do we have? Meat as far as the eye can see. That's what we have. Mouths are watering, right? Stomachs, tummies are rumbling. And just as they sink their teeth into that meat, 1133, before it was consumed, the anger of the Lord was kindled against the people And the Lord struck down the people with a very great plague. Right, That all-you-can-eat dinner at Fogo de Chao has just become a funeral. Right, The bodies are now dropping like the birds dropped as well. My friend, beware of what you ask for. Beware of what you ask for. One of God's most profound judgments upon sinners is, is to give them exactly what they asked for. He gives Israel what she asked for. And what they expect will satisfy them is in fact what destroys and condemns them. And that would have been a horrible sight. Mothers wailing, spouses weeping, children grieving over the dead bodies there. Right? They had just enough time to dig shallow graves before they had to shuffle forward and leave that place that they named literally the graves of craving. That's what it means. This, uh, where did it go? Yeah, Kibroth Hadavah. Just means graves of craving. So they're leaving behind, right, a sea of birds and some hastily erected tombstones, and they have to march forward. Already we're seeing that the graves are mounting in the wilderness. And will the people learn their lesson? You might hope so. You might think so at this site. But apparently not because the contagion continues to spread, right? From the outside, the rabble, into Israel. And then that through that rabble right to Moses' own relatives in chapter 12. Right? Miriam and Aaron, it gets right to them, to his siblings, they speak out against him. Ostensibly, they, we read because they say Moses' wife, right, was a, a Cushite woman. Now, in referencing that, they may be referencing Zipporah. It's possible Cush is a, syn- a synonym for Midian. 
maybe, or maybe she's died and this is Moses' second wife. We're not exactly sure. Truth is, we know that Cush is sort of modern-day Somalia, Ethiopia. Point is, she's not an Israelite. This is a mixed marriage. So just an aside for this, just in a moment, you know, sadly, uh, in many parts of the world and even in our own country, uh, folks have sometimes tried to twist the scriptures to forbid interracial marriage, to make it illegal, even criminal, as it was in this country up until the last century. But notice, and I think what's fascinating here, is in this story, Moses is going to be vindicated. Miriam is the one who is judged and condemned. And I think we're already beginning to see how God is intending to unite Jew and Gentile. All colors, all ethnicities into one new family. You know, it's a wonderful thing when couples choose to marry or choose to adopt. And in those families, we reflect the kind of diversity that's going to be part of the kingdom of heaven. That's a beautiful thing. It can come, though, with additional challenges. It absolutely can. But it uniquely displays and beautifully displays the kind of family we will all one day be in Christ. So I think in a time when the world increasingly is retreating back into their own ethnic and racial tribes, retreating back, retreating in, just pray that we as a church, we would be different. Pray that we would be to couples and to families that display this kind of ethnic difference, that they would receive our support, feel our encouragement. At any rate. We see that's actually, this complaint about the Cushite woman is just a smokescreen for a bigger complaint. Chapter 12, verse 2. Has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us also? So right there, catch what the issue is. For Miriam and for Aaron, they resented Moses' unique relationship with the Lord and they resented his unique role among the people. They're resenting both those things, his unique relationship and his unique role, right? Moses had what they didn't have, and they resented Moses for it, right? Why should we have to listen to him? Why does he get to call all the shots? What makes him so special, right? Moses was Aaron's younger brother, right? Why why doesn't the older brother get the pride of place? Friend, I wonder if you know what that's like. To feel the envy of what another has that you don't have. Right? To feel like another has perhaps what you think you deserve. Right? Why didn't I get that promotion but she did? Why are men and only men qualified men elders? Why wasn't I copied on that email? Why wasn't I invited to that meeting? Why didn't I get the invitation to that party? Why am I not a part of that friend group? Right? Why them and not me? We don't like in those moments how God has ordered our life. And so we grumble and we become bitter about it. And notice how envy has this way of distorting perception. In envy, we rarely see things as they really are. It's another form of deception. Right? We saw him back in chapter 11. Because the reality is, Moses would have happily traded places with Miriam and Aaron. We just read about all his complaining. He didn't want to bear the burden of the people. You want this role? He, I think, would have happily given it up back in chapter 11. But they don't see that because when you envy another, all you can see are their blessings. You don't see any of the hardships. And in envy, all you can see are your own hardships. And you're blind to all your own blessings. You know, some singles, right, who long for companionship maybe frustrated they're not married. And then you got married people frustrated with their spouses who wish that they were single. Right? They'd rather just trade places, convinced they'd be happier if they could. Or those who have an entry-level job and would love to have more responsibility, more pay, more prestige in that role. They want to call the shots. And the, those who have responsibility or are in positions of leadership just long for the day when life was simpler and easier and they could leave their work at work. Envy whispers to us, right, the grass is always greener on the other side. That's what it whispers. It's always greener on the other side. But friends, when you start looking over the fence at another's grass, 
and it looks like Augusta National, right? That beautiful golf course, green, manicured, perfect. You're promised one of two things. Either one, their water bill is extremely high, or two, it's fake grass. One of those two things are going to be true because life is just never that simple. God knows exactly what he's doing. Putting Israel where he has, putting you where he has put you, and the circumstances you're in, that's not an accident. Now, it feels to us in those moments that God's made some mistake, that there has been some accident. This is all some big cosmic joke. God's fallen asleep at the wheel. Certainly, he doesn't want sort of fill in the blank. He doesn't want that for me. That's what we think. Friends, if you know those films, right, where the actors and actresses just get ripped, right, in in preparation. So recently was Thor Love and Thunder, right? Chris Hemsworth gets all jacked and... But actually, the real star in Wall Street Journal had an article about this was Natalie Portman. They said the, the, one that, the, the thing that stole the show and the whole program were her like ripped biceps. Okay, well, you know, you know what I mean. And of course, what do they have? They have top-rate trainers. They have nutritionists. They have specialists who exercise in recovery and in sleep. They have everything at their disposal. And we wish we could have some of that at our disposal. We wish we could have a kind of regimen like that that was tailor-made for us, that we might have physiques that look like that. Wouldn't that be amazing? Wouldn't that be great? Such tailor-made training. And we don't have it, so what are we left with? Well, we piecemeal something together, right? We go back to like Richard Simmons in the 70s. I don't know what we do, but we piece something else together because we don't have access to that. But my Christian friend recognized God has a sanctification program that is tailor-made for you. He's tailor-made it for you and just for you. Now, I know it may not feel like it because you're in the midst of that dead-end job or that miserable marriage or you've got that mean teacher or that bully at school or maybe you're in an upside-down financial situation Right, the horrible boss, the difficult child, it may feel like you're starring in some divine tragedy. Again, like it's a cosmic joke. But it's not. God has specifically designed and programmed your life with your sanctification in mind. And he knows exactly what you need which is exactly why you are where you are, and that is not an accident. He knows if you're going to become spiritually jacked, right? He knows how to do it. He knows how to do it and to form you and to shape you into exactly what he intends you to be. So friends, why would you long after another's life, their program? Why would you seek to exchange your program with their program when he has custom-built yours Just for you. Just for you. You know, sadly, we do that all the time, though. We want to exchange it. So the Lord, what he's going to do, he's going to call the three of them, Moses, Miriam, Aaron. He's going to call them to the tent of meeting in chapter 12, a kind of tribunal. He's going to say in chapter 12, verse 6, right, hear my words. That's what God says, which is ironic because, of course, Miriam and Aaron claimed they could hear God's word just as Moses did. And God's going to give them his word, and they're not going to want to hear it. He's going to confirm Moses as a unique prophet, unlike other prophets. He doesn't speak to him in riddles or in dreams, but mouth-to-mouth, which is just another way of saying face-to-face. It is a unique relationship they have. And so he rebukes Miriam and Aaron. And when he departs, Miriam is left what? She's left leprous. Now, you may wonder, why does it appear that Miriam is the only one judged? Well, just notice in 12.1, she's listed first, a little more unusually, but she's listed first likely because she is the one who is led out in the speaking out against Moses. Miriam is likely the chief complainer, which explains why she receives the chief penalty. And lepers, friends, they were considered the living dead, right? That appearance of half-eaten flesh with leprosy, it connects actually connects us back to chapter 11 with the half-eaten flesh, right, of the quail that was between the people's teeth, right? Their complaints are similarly 
what they're a rejection of God's good authority over their lives. And the consequence of that rejection, as we're seeing, can be deadly. For while the complaints in some of these chapters seem as trivial as things about food, what lies behind that complaint is dissatisfaction, even anger and bitterness toward God. That's where it finally goes. Right? Why have you ordered my life this way in the desert? Right? I'm tired. Why have you provided this way with this manna, not with the ways I would like you to provide, with the variety of items I want? Why, God, have you put these authorities over me? Why do I have to listen to them? Why don't they get to call the shots again? All these complaints, ultimately, they're complaints against God and how he has ordered their lives, and they don't like it. So, friend, I just want to pose to you this question. Are you one who complains? Are you one who complains? If so, what does that say about you? What does that reveal about your own relationship with God? Now, here's one of the dangers, is that complainers rarely hear their own complaints. They don't even realize they're complaining when they complain. Sadly, my wife has to remind that of me which is one of the reasons why I'm just going to encourage you, if you're not sure, and because we're never the best read on ourselves, the best judge of ourselves, ask someone who knows you well, who spends time with you. Ask them today, this afternoon, right, this week, am I a complainer? Just ask them that question. Is my disposition one of joy and contentment and trust in the Lord? Or is it complaints, frustration, irritability, Bitterness, fundamentally unbelief. Is that what marks me? But even more, notice Miriam was what? She was leprous like snow, verse 10. So like the quail, catch, there's a bit of poetic justice in these judgments. You want meat? I'll give you meat until it sickens you. You don't like the dark skin of that Cushite wife? I can make your skin plenty white, white as snow, until it falls off your body. You don't like Moses being a spiritual father, right? You've proverbially spit in his face. And so you'll therefore, Miriam, bear the shame outside the camp for seven days, the very same shame of one who had shamed their earthly father, right? That's the, that's the punishment that Miriam gets. And friends, part of what we're seeing even in there is that God's wrath is not some impersonal force. Right? It's not just some typhoon. It's not just some bolt of lightning that simply strikes at random. It's not coincidental. It is personal. It is intentional. Right? Multiple times we have read that God's anger was kindled. Back in 11.1, right when the people first complained, we read of that. In 11.33, Right, as they tore into that quail, what do we read? That his anger was kindled against his people. Or here with Miriam and with Aaron, his anger kindled against them. See, God's anger is not simply an emotion. It is a judicial expression of his righteous character. And it's poured out on individuals as a consequence of their sin. We see it all over, right? We see it in the half-burned camp and the half-eaten birds, and the half-eaten skin of Miriam? So friend, what will you do then with God's wrath directed toward you? Personal, intentional, righteous wrath. What will you do with that? How will you not become like the Israelites who dropped dead in the wilderness? And that brings us to our much shorter lesson, right? Lesson two. Lesson two, restoration requires mediation. Restoration requires mediation. So did you ask yourself at all through the reading, why do some people, why do some of the complainers die and some don't? You ever wonder that? Why in, this, in, this, in these two chapters, some complainers die and some don't die. Why is that? Well, look back with me to the beginning of chapter 11. The beginning of chapter 11, right? The people complain about their misfortunes. We read that the fire burned among them, consumed some of the outlying parts of the camp. Now just ask yourself, what stopped the fire? Why did the fire not tear through the camp and burn it all down to ash? Look down, chapter 11, verse 2. Look down there. Then 
the people cried out to Moses, and Moses prayed to the Lord, and the fire died down. That's interesting. Okay. So why is Miriam restored of her leprosy and returned to the people? Right, turn forward, chapter 12. Jump forward to chapter 12. Notice again what happens. Chapter 12, verse 11, right, there's the leprosy. Aaron pleads with Moses. And then in chapter 12, verse 13, look there, chapter 12, verse 13. And Moses cried to the Lord, oh God, please heal her, please. Right there, Moses is pleading and he's praying that she would be healed, that she would be restored. So then why did so many people drop dead in the desert? We'll look back to chapter 11. Flip back again, chapter 11. Right, The people are groaning about the lack of meat on the menu. And what does Moses do in response to that? Chapter 11, verses 10 to 15. Does Moses pray for them? Well, he prays, but not exactly for them, does he? No, instead there's this torrent of frustration that just tumbles off his own lips. He doesn't pray for them, but he complains about them. And in his complaints, he makes it actually all about him. In those five verses, 11 through 15, Moses will refer to himself in the Hebrew 20 times. He makes it all about him. And when the Lord tells him that, right, okay, they're going to have meat all right until it's coming out of their nostrils and it's loathsome. In other words, it's nauseating, it's sickening to them. What does Moses do? Does Moses then say, oh, wait, let me pray for this people? No, he doesn't do that. What does he do? He starts complaining again. Where am I going to get all the meat? Friend, without one praying for them, without one standing in the gap for them, the people die. Their life and death literally hinges on whether or not they had a faithful mediator. Because restoration requires mediation. And I think this helps explain something else as well. Because everyone through these two chapters that we see complain is in some way judged. Right? The people, the rabble, Miriam, Aaron, only it appears somehow Moses escapes. Right? He seems to complain, but there's no obvious judgment. Only, actually, he gets mercy in the form of elders that are going to help him bear the burden of this load. Right? So there is indeed mercy extended to Moses. And the reality is, friends, God can show mercy to whomever he like. He is sovereign. He is God. And in the same way, he can send his spirit out on whomever he wills, even if Joshua, son of Nun, doesn't like who it goes to, right? God has the right to do that. Jesus teaches the same. But friends, notice Moses is, I think, in fact, judged. And his judgment, I think, comes in the death of all of those people. The mass graves the mother's cries, that is the burden he would be called to bear for failing to intercede and mediate for the people. Would the people have lived if Moses prayed? We're not explicitly told. I want to be clear, we're not explicitly told. And yet, I think the narrative suggests so. Because everywhere Moses engages on mediation on behalf of the people, there is restoration. Right, with the fire, with Miriam, you go into chapter 14, the people rebel, Moses will intercede, and again God stays and he relents his judgment. But where he fails to intercede, there is death. Friends, I want you to see that as no different with us. Restoration requires mediation. So I ask you, who will mediate for you? Who will mediate For you, who will turn away the Lord's anger for your sin? Consider for a moment, right? If you've come this morning, you wouldn't identify as a Christian, right? We're delighted you're here. We hope you've been helped in somewhat by all of this. Friend, ask yourself, what will happen on that final day when you stand before the Lord and you don't have anyone to intercede for you? Do you expect to fare better than these Israelites have in the wilderness? The reality is we all have our complaints against God. What we don't take into account is that God actually has some complaints first against us. Against us. 
And when God lays out his complaint against you, who will intercede for you? Now, the wonderful news, as we keep reading through the scriptures, is that there is, in fact, a better and a more faithful mediator than Moses. One who never fails to pray, right? One who never fails to intercede for his people. And while Moses was faithful as a servant, right, as a steward over God's house, we read that this one would be faithful as a son, Hebrews 3, over all of God's house, And like Miriam, who would suffer shame and disgrace of her sin outside the camp, so this one would take our shame and disgrace and also suffer outside that camp. And he didn't complain, like so many are here, but rather for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising its shame. And then he rose from the grave, right now at the right hand of the Father. And now this one ever lives to intercede for me. Right, that's what we sing of, Romans 8, 34. Friend, that mediator is Jesus Christ. That's who he is. He is, as we read earlier from John 6, he is what? The bread of life. They ate manna in the wilderness and died, but Jesus said, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. Oh, my non-Christian friend, look to Christ. Turn to Christ Trust in Christ, right? Feast even. Take all your delight in him, all your joy in him. And you will not only have a mediator to restore you, but you will have a savior who will love you and keep you and deliver you to the end. That's the glorious news that the gospel holds out to you. This faithful mediator, more faithful than Moses and Christ. And he will not forget to pray and intercede for you. So thinking back to where we started, I want to pose that question again. Is complaining, is grumbling, in fact, a serious sin? Is it a kind of sin you might want to think about avoiding at all costs? One that, if you're not careful, could lead to your own death? Most of us don't think like that. Last I checked, there were no self-help groups for, like, grumblers. Just don't tend to find them. And in our consumeristic culture, it's interesting. In fact, it's even worse. Because complaining has become a kind of right. There are whole complaints departments structured and staffed for you so you can call and express your complaint and expect to be justified. But I hope you've begun to see just how dangerous that kind of spirit can become. For when we complain, what we're really doing is we're shaking our fist somewhere in there at God and we are saying, I don't like how you've ordered my life. I don't like your provision. I don't trust your authority. I don't deserve this life. I deserve something better than this. And the grumbling and the dissatisfaction is fundamentally a rejection of God and a statement of unbelief. At least an expression, I should say, of unbelief. Friends, our words give us away. And friends, such dissatisfaction leads to destruction, which is why we need mediation. So I ask again, on that day when God, in fact, brings his complaints against you, who will intercede and who will mediate on your behalf?